Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see you and good to be with you on this Lord's Day. And uh, I bring you greetings also from Benoni Bible Church. I'm supposed to push this until it goes green, but is it on? Hold it in. Oh, there we go. Okay. Here we go. Again, wonderful to see all of you. A number of years ago, I pastored at Middleburg Baptist, and so I'm familiar with the area. And then we, um, I moderated at Whitbank Baptist for a period, for about a year, and I've been at Benoni Bible Church since December 2017, and it's been a joy to even be there. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to help us to pay attention to his word this morning and to give him the glory that is due his name in worship. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of being together this morning, and we do count this a privilege a privilege to worship you, a privilege to serve you, a privilege to preach your word and to hear your word being preached. We do pray that you would do your mighty work within our hearts by your Holy Spirit and that you would cause us to be quickened toward worship. And we pray, Lord, for the saints here at Faith Baptist. We pray that you would do a work in each one's heart through your word. We trust in you and we give our lives once again this morning to you knowing that you can do through us marvelously. And we thank you for the good works that you prepared before and that we would walk in them. And we pray that you would help us as disciples of Jesus to honor his awesome name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do what thou wilt. You heard that before? Do what thou wilt. And this is the motto of the satanic church founded by a 33-degree Freemason, a secret society which worships Lucifer. His name was Alistair Crowley. This little statement really does an excellent job of summing up paganism. And that's what it really is at its core, paganism. And it stretches back all the way to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve sought independence from God and from God's word and from his commandments and where Eve was deceived by the serpent. You remember that? She took the forbidden fruit and then gave some to her husband who was with her. Not being deceived himself, but willfully entering into sin alongside his wife. And the whole world was plunged along with the human race into the curse of sin. You can look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 3 verse 1 to 8 to be reminded of that. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
What a lie. They'd been made in the image of God. How could they now be more like God by sinning? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, lust of the flesh, she took of the fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the garden or the trees of the garden. Do what thou wilt. Forget about God. Go your own way. This sums up the pagan kind of world that you and I are in, dear Christian. We are in an absolutely pagan society run by pagans, surrounded by pagans, and sadly, much of even the modern evangelical church itself is pagan at its core. Whenever man does whatever is right in his own eyes, it leads toward paganism, to idolatry of every kind. Christian, One doesn't need to plunge to the depths of depravity like Alistair Crowley. If you know anything of him, he did whatever he wanted to do. You don't need to plunge to the depths of that kind of a depravity to be depraved yourself. Just do what you want to do. You might even have purer motives trying to be right by trying to be right in your own eyes. That is paganism. At its core. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 say this. And it's said twice in the Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. If I could be so bold as to add to the motto statement of the Satanists. Do what thou wilt. When thou wilt. And how thou wilt. Is that not what we see? In our world? Is this not what we've seen in the world around us, even in our beloved country, in our land? And this worldview is not freedom, it is captivity at its core. Living your own way, when you want to, how you want to, is the deepest, darkest kind of a dungeon. You were not created for such self worship. For this narcissistic kind of an existence. And there's a deep emptiness which such a living creates within that individual. Yet even well-meaning Christians too easily fall into such same self-worship. Our Lord Jesus is absolutely opposite in his incarnation. Not coming to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Loving the Lord God with all his heart, his soul, and his mind, and loving his neighbor as he loves himself. Letting his love of God and his worship of God rightly direct his love of his neighbor. We're looking this morning at true discipleship. We're looking to learn from our Lord Jesus, striving to grow nearer to him. And sadly, we see such an opposite in much of our world. 
One hears even such ludicrous statements coming out of the mouths of well-meaning Christians, something like, we'll worship God government willing, we'll worship God weather permitting, entertainment permitting, I'll be there if I get enough sleep, if I'm not too tired from what I did on the Saturday, I'll come and worship with God's people and worship Christ. If I finished my work that I have for Monday, and the list could go on and on. What is the mantra? If we've looked at the mantra of the Satanists, do what thou wilt, what is the mantra of the Christian? Lord willing. Lord willing. Very different, isn't it? What is it that our Lord, the second Adam, no longer in the Garden of Eden, but in a different kind of a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, what is it that he said in his prayer to his father right before his betrayal? Remember it? Just before his crucifixion? Not my will be done, but yours. True Christianity is defined completely opposite to Satanism. Do you see that? And it's opposite to the pagan culture that surrounds us, dear church. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielding, and still. How else? Will we hear the wonderful commendation laid out in Matthew chapter 5? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Do what thou wilt, when thou wilt, how thou wilt. Deserves the kind of sending off that the Lord Jesus says to those that are on his left. And he says, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. And he sends them into the lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his demons. It's when we do what he wills, how he wills, and when he wills that we are ever able to be commended with good, faithful servant. And dear Christian, if you've been doing what you will, repent. Repent. Do what he wills. And what is his will? Well, it is your sanctification, your turning to Christ. It is true discipleship. Let me remind you of Romans 12 verse 2. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. When the church is doing exactly the same thing as the rest of the world around it, that's not a good testimony to the truth. Not at all. If we behave the same way that false religions behave, then we're on the broad path. We're no longer on the narrow path of discipleship, saying, your will be done, O Lord. That should scare us if we look around us and we're fitting in with the rest of the world. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How? By the word of God. By his spirit which, which flows within the life of the believer. God's will is very contrary to your own will in your flesh. The desires to be your own Lord, your own master, 
But dear one, if Jesus is your Lord and your master, and you are truly a part of the bride of Christ, then you will live differently than the pagan world around you. We are his disciples, and a disciple at the very core mimics his teacher. He wants to be all that his teacher is. He is a follower. He checks where the footprints are in front of him, and he's careful to place his foot where his master has trodden. In times of confusion, in times of turmoil, even more so, he studies the footprints of his Lord and he walks in them. In a time of crisis, that calls him even to greater attention to the details of what is his will, not mine. This will be our focus this morning. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, I do want to read to you the, the broader context. Matthew chapter 16, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. From Matthew 16, from verse 13 to 17, verse 8, so that you get a bit of the context of where we're at, and we're going to be focusing this morning on verse 24 of Matthew 16 in particular. God's Word reads, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What a wonderful proclamation from Peter about the Lord Jesus. He gets it. But how did he get it? Not by his own doing did he get this. Jesus even says, you got this by the Spirit of God. He's, my Father has, has told you about this. Verse 18 continues, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. I want you to get the context. What's Jesus telling him about? What's he telling his disciples about? I'm going to go and suffer. I'm going to be obedient to my Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. What happens with Peter, the one who made this wonderful profession just a few moments before? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never not happen to you could hardly use stronger Greek words than what Peter rebukes Jesus with here. But he turned to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. What was Peter's problem at this point? He was doing what thou wilt, when thou wilt, how thou wilt. And he's rebuked by our Lord when he had come to rebuke Jesus about what Jesus was doing. 
how Jesus was doing it, when Jesus was doing it. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so picture this, he's just been taken aside by Peter. Now he turns to his disciples, probably overhearing this heated exchange. He turns to his disciples, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, what's he just been telling them? I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer doing the will of my Father in heaven. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Contextually, this is just before Jesus is going to Jerusalem to pick up his cross. And he's saying to his disciples, you pick up your cross. Come. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? When a person's doing this, do what thou wilt, when thou wilt, how thou wilt, what gain is it? Even if you get everything that this world has to offer, what gain is it? You're going to lose your soul. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then chapter 17. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothing became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to the Lord, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now I read that broader section so that you get a picture of this. So that we be reminded of this. Jesus is still God's beloved son, living at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his church. We are still as his disciples to be listening to Jesus' voice. Now the whole book of Matthew presents Jesus as king. You'd probably be aware of that. He's rejected by the Jews as king. But dear church, King Jesus is coming again and will establish his earthly kingdom. He will rule over his father David's throne. But dear Christian, if you are one that recognizes Jesus as the coming king, then you must recognize his authority over your life to be his disciple, to do what he tells you to do. And that through his death and through his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He has already obtained victory. We simply follow in the victory throng when we as ambassadors of the cross are telling the good news to the world. We're telling them about a victor, about Jesus Christ, 
who conquered the grave, who conquered the cross, who did all that his father had given him to do, who had, he was obedient even to the point of death. And we speak the good news that this King Jesus is coming back again. We're his disciples, his ambassadors. We go where he sends. We say what he tells us to say. We live as he commanded us to live. And there's been some great debate in our day regarding authority. You've probably seen it in the last couple of months. Who has the authority over the Christian and over the church? It is Jesus Christ alone. He is the husband and the Lord of the church. He is the master of the church. He is the savior of his bride. Dear church, let us be reminded of this. And let me remind you of a passage which I'm sure you as a church have looked at many times, being a church that has had missionaries, sending missionaries. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. You know it well. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. A lot of emphasis often in missionary sermons will be on the going part. Let me give you some extra emphasis here on the authority part. He starts off saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he ends off saying, I am with you. This one who has all of the authority. To go and be disciples who make disciples. We are, church, disciples of Jesus. Who go, therefore, and make disciples of Jesus. And being committed to this To the time that Jesus, the great bridegroom of the bride, his church, returns. That's our commission. And it has never been put on pause. Not since his ascension. It's never been put on pause. No matter what happens in this world. No no matter the ebbs and the flows and the ups and the downs and this crisis or that crisis. The church is there and we have the privilege of having him be the one who commissioned us. All authority in heaven and on earth. It is a privilege for us to be part of this. Can he do it without us? Of course. Of course. Does he need us to do this? No. Does he want us to? Of course. This is the call toward us. But what does true discipleship look like? How do you know that you are a true disciple of Jesus? Let me emphasize again verse 24 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a simple outline. I'm sure you get it by now. You've heard lots of expository preaching. You know where I'm going already. Firstly, self-denial. How do you know you're a true disciple of Jesus? Self-denial. I'm going to do it your way, O Lord. That's self-denial. It's not do what thou wilt, me, do what I want. It's I'm going to do it your way. And the greatest obstacle really to the way of true discipleship is self. You've got to realize this, Christian. Self-absorption, self-protection, selfishness, self-love, self-worship. That's the greatest obstacle to true discipleship. 
And as we have become, as a culture around the world, more and more self-absorbed as a society, so the megapixels on our selfie cameras have increased. Social media platforms completely tailor-made to promote yourself. One's own views. Well, as long as that goes along with the prescribed narrative of the collective ignorance, of course, you can continue to say it. Not only does true discipleship say, I'm going to do God's will, it's more than that. It is saying, I'm not going to do my will. I'm not going to do my will. I'm going to do His will. I'm going to be careful to do His will. I've been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I'm His to command. It's self-denial. Denial of self. And by the way, denial is not just a river in Egypt. But it goes opposite to what and where our self would naturally go apart from grace. Where you naturally would go, it goes opposite to this. It denies self. It dies to self and is alive to Christ how else could we ever be commended as good? You, you remember that section, Matthew 25? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus said, who's good other than God? How could you ever get the commendation as good? Only when there's self-denial. Only when it is Christ that now lives in you. Galatians 2.20, Paul said this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a lovely verse for you, Faith Baptist Church. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me gave himself for me no longer me that's why i can boast in christ look at this that christ is doing in us look at the cross of christ it's no longer i that live it's well done my good and faithful servant colossians 3 verse 1 to 11 is another example of this from paul if you want to look there with me at colossians 3 from verse 1 to 11 if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It seems to me that many modern day evangelicals have forgotten this. They're seeking so much the things of this world, not where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is pretty clear, isn't it? If, indeed, you've been raised with Christ. He starts with a big if there in chapter 3, verse 1. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth, for you have died. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. That was you. It's no longer you. But now you yourselves are to put on, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its deeds." 
and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You have most likely heard the statement, my way or the highway. Recognize, dear one, that your way and my way is the highway. That is the broad path that leads to destruction. That is the path that all the world is on. They're traveling on it. It's a multi-laned highway and they're all on that. And they're following after the deception of the devil which puts them on that broad path. And it leads them to destruction. The statement should read, Jesus' way, which is the narrow way, or it is the highway. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Few are on the narrow way that leads to life. Let me remind you of this in Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14, which says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. It has been something strange in recent months where people debate saying things like all other religions are doing this. Or doing that, so surely we as the church should do this or do that. Since when, dear church, have we ever fallen for such universalism or such ecumenicalism? Since when has everyone else is doing it that way become a Christian virtue? Since when? Since when have we decided to go the way that every other pagan has gone? And think that that's somehow Christian. The Christian goes the way of the Lord. The way of self-denial. Think how contrary our world is set up, dear ones. The world even tries to tell you that self-protection is the best kind of self-denial. Did our Lord live like that? Jesus is our most perfect guide in such self-denial, even as he faced the cross. And remember what Peter did. No, 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 Lord, no, no. Surely God would not want this for you. May it never be. There's no ways that I'm letting you go there. You weren't born to die. No ways. Look at Philippians 2 verse 1 to 11. A wonderful passage to remind ourselves of the humility of Jesus. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. What mind? The mind of Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You see how contrary this is to the world? Let each of you look not only... Look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this be, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not count 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's our perfect example of this. He laid aside his deity, not that he was never God, but he laid aside what was always his for eternity past, the adoration of all the angelic beings around him, and he was born in the likeness of man. He took on flesh, 100% God becoming 100% man, and he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Self-denial looks like active, devoted obedience to the will of God like Jesus. That's what it looks like. It is listening to his voice. The voice of the devil is very loud in our world. We are confronted with his propaganda wherever we turn. With the sole desire of turning you inward. That's his desire. I don't want you to deny yourself. I want you to love yourself. You're worth it, right? Satan doesn't try to get you to worship him. He's way more deceptive and deceitful than that. He tries to get you to worship yourself, which is way easier for you to do. And he knows that the end result from worshiping yourself will not be you worshiping God. And so you'll be a worshiper of him. By default. That's what he does. Did God really say, Come, be wise in your own eyes. You're such a smart person. Go your own way. You're the captain of your own ship. Oh, it's getting a bit too uncomfortable for you at Faith Baptist. Why not just go somewhere else? You're the master of your own destiny. You can be what you want to be. You're worth it. Just as long as you're listening to your conscience, even if that's contrary to the scriptures, I mean, surely God wouldn't want you to be uncomfortable, right? Or worse, face some kind of persecution or even death for the sake of faithfulness to him. Surely God won't want that. He might have wanted that for saints of old who are your heroes and you got their books on your wall. But no, he wouldn't want that for you, right? What is worship? Worship is ascribing worth to. And why do we even assemble on the Lord's Day to worship the name of Jesus? It is because of his resurrection from the dead. It is because he died, but he rose again. And we worship in the same resurrecting power of Christ by his spirit. We come to worship. It's the very fact that he is worthy that we worship and we have devotion to him and we do what he commanded us to do. Even if it comes at great cost. There's no greater cost 
than what the Father paid in sending his Son to die on a cruel cross for you and for me. It ought to be the greatest of privileges for you and I, should we even suffer and count it worthy to suffer for our Lord with such self-denial. The persecuted church gets this, and it's time, dear church, that we in the Western world started to wake up and smell the sweet roses of such divine privilege. Self-denial. Dear one, have you been instead self-deceived? Have you been self-deceived into believing that Christianity somehow has become about self-protection? Have you begun to abuse the liberty provided for you in Christ? See, dear one, the liberty that you've been provided in Christ is not the freedom to do whatever you like and to abuse the grace of God that has been given. It is rather the ability to say no to the world. It is the ability to say no to self. It is the ability to resist the devil and he will flee. It is the ability to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It is the liberty provided in the cross of Christ which makes it possible for you and I to set free or be set free from any other masters other than Christ. True discipleship looks like self-denial, but also secondly, it looks like submissive surrender. Submissive surrender. I'm going to do it how you want, Lord. Take up his cross. That's where Jesus goes in verse 24. Jesus doesn't say, take up my cross. Who was going to bear his cross? He would. But he's saying to his disciples, you want to come after me? I got a cross to bear. Peter tried to stop me from bearing it. He wanted me to do Satan's will. He wanted me to do paganism. That's what he wanted. Do what I want to do or do what Peter wants me to do. But I'm going to the cross. I'm taking up my cross. You need to take up your cross. He says, take up his cross, the individual cross that each follower of Jesus, each disciple of Jesus is called to take up. There is a specific task, a specific cross that the Christian is called to carry, which no other Christian can carry for them. This is the path of sanctification, which no other Christian can walk for them. It is a cross no other Christian can carry for him. They must carry it. It's not the exact same cross as the cross of Jesus only he bore that cross and only he fulfilled and had victory over it but rather it is a cross like the cross of Jesus not carried for salvation but carried because of salvation because he's done it he's worthy he's completed he has victory it is the sanctifying cross of Christian victory The sanctifying cross of Christian victory. It is a banner of victory carried because Jesus conquered the cross and he made it possible for us to bear ours. We don't carry a crucifix around our neck with a Jesus still on the cross because he carried his cross to Calvary and he was nailed on it and he he finished the task. He was buried. He rose again victorious over the cross and over death. 
He walked amongst his disciples and then ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he still works for his church. He intercedes for us. But we are called to be his disciples toward the same obedience characterized in him, our Lord, the Lord Jesus. The same kind of obedience to his Father that the Lord Jesus fulfilled. His obedience makes our obedience possible. It empowers our obedience. It gives us strength to carry that cross. His salvific work makes our daily dying to self possible. The renewing of the mind possible. Living for him possible. And if the world hated him, dear Christian, and nailed him to the cross, they may well try to nail you to the same cross that you carry. He told us about this. Why is it a surprise that the world would hate the Christian or that the Christian being devoted to Jesus would get slandered and told, no, you don't have a good testimony right now because you're not behaving like the Muslim and the Buddhist and the Hindu or the atheist. The the cross was a torturous invention. The disciples understood this. We sometimes think it's something pretty. Those crucified would often be forced to carry the very thing by which they would be nailed to and die on. The Christian embraces the death of Christ so that he might embrace the life of Christ. They recognize the suffering and the glory connections that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter. Peter eventually got this as well. Go study the book of 1 Peter. They recognize the life of sacrifice that they are called towards because of Christ's sacrifice. To be living sacrifices to God. You ought to, Christian, be smoking as you walk around. Not, don't hear me wrong, okay? Not the smoking. You ought to be Having a holy smoke rise from you as you are a living sacrifice for Christ as you carry the cross. The Christian life is lived very oxymoronically. That means that there's two opposites here. There's the suffering, but there's this glory. We are growing in groaning. Have you read Romans 8? We're growing in groaning along with all of creation for the day of redemption. As we walk on this path of the cross, we look for rest in Christ. And we walk on this path, but yet even in our growing in groaning, we are growing in gratefulness. Look at the victory of Christ. The Christian carries their cross. But they are helped in so doing by the same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the grave. They are interceded for by him within them, the spirit of God, as he cries out in utterance and intercession for that very saint who carries that cross. And by their Lord Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, no longer on his cross, but victorious over it. He intercedes for them as well. They have a mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're empowered by him who bore his cross. So that we might bear ours. So that we might live a life of worship in bearing the cross. It is his burden that he gives them, which is light, momentary. And it 
builds up for us an eternal weight of glory as we look to him who died for me. Forgetting him or turning their gaze from the path that he walked and suddenly the cross seems way too heavy to even bear. This Christianity thing, no, no, no. Maybe I'll just put it on pause for a little while. Maybe he doesn't really want us to do the Great Commission for a time until such crisis or this thing in the world changes. They may be tempted to place it down on the ground or worse yet to send it off to some carpenter to fashion into something quite a little bit different, a couch maybe. You know, something comfortable. Surely he wants us to be comfortable, right? We're so civilized in the West. Surely he doesn't expect from us what he did from the rest of the church. But it is a cross that you are called to, Christian, not a couch. It is suffering, not surfing or web surfing. It is sacrifice, not safety. It is danger, not worldly delight. That's what we call to. Have we forgotten, dear church, that we are in a battle? No, we're not just in a battle. We're in a war. And the souls of men hang in the balance. I'm going to do your will, Lord. I'm going to do it the way you did it. How God wills is discipleship. It's very active and it's not passive. You pick up your cross and you, you go somewhere. That's the next point. Let me not get there yet. You know where it is. You know what it is. Salvation is indeed a grand subject. We spend a lot of time as preachers preaching about salvation. But let us not neglect sanctification. Salvation points us to the empty cross that Christ conquered. Sanctification points you to the cross that you need to still carry. This life is not going to be easy for the Christian. Probably even harder than you ever imagined. But so worth it. So worth it. Pick up the cross. Obey your Lord. Take it up. Get on with it. The cross was shameful. You know that? Anybody who was hung on a tree was called cursed. That's what Jesus became for us. He became a curse so that you and I might go free. Now it is, dear Christian, when you embrace the cross, that you show that you're not ashamed of Jesus. Do you know that? When you embrace the cross that he's called you to bear as a Christian, you show that you're not ashamed of Jesus, but you pick up the very thing that gets the whole world to be ashamed of you. Look for a moment at the parallel passage to our passage in Luke chapter 9. I want to highlight this for you in verse 23 to 26 of Luke 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 26. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take and take up his cross daily. You see what Luke adds there? A little word that gives it a whole extra emphasis. It's what Matthew meant as well. But we see it better here. Take up his cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. You take it up. Lord, that's another new day where I need to bear this cross as a Christian. 
I want to bear it for your glory. You get to the end of the day and you say, thank you, Lord, that you gave me the strength to carry that cross. And should the rapture happen or should I die in my sleep? I'm looking so forward to seeing you, Jesus. The next day, Lord, thank you that I get to bear this cross once more. What a privilege it is to serve you. All authority has been given to you and I must go there for. But notice as well what Luke continues to say. And follow me, verse 24 now of Luke chapter 9. He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? And then he says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me. You see, if you're not going to do this, if you're not going to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him, what is the end result? You're actually ashamed of Jesus. You're ashamed of him. You're still in that thinking like Peter had when he said to him, never Lord, never will you go there, never will you die. And then you've embraced paganism. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. True discipleship is how we get commended. A neglect of true discipleship is how we get condemned. The very thing which we are called to make our boast in, dear Christian, is the cross of Christ. Are we scared, so scared of being shamed by the world so that we've become ashamed of Jesus? You might be okay with being called a Christian or ticking a box or saying, well, I'm a Christian, but be ashamed of living like one. Far be it from us. Take up your cross. The greatest act of service that our Lord did for us was taking up the cross. For in it he obeyed his Father even to the point of death on it. My, not my will be done, Lord, but yours. Sweat drops of blood. I'm going to take that cross up. What a service to the church. It was the ultimate denial of self, that taking up of the cross. It is the greatest glory to God when we take up the cross, which he has for us. It's the greatest service to one another when we bear the cross, when we carry the load that the Father has for us to carry in this world and in this church. Being a part of the body which Christ called us to be. Doing the specific thing that, that he has for you at Faith Baptist. Maybe one of you are seated here going, I need to take up the cross of helping the pastor with the PowerPoint. Take it up. Take it up. Whatever it is that he calls you toward, take it up. Carry the load that the Father has for you to carry in this world. When a man submits to the load of the cross inside of the Roman world, it showed his submission to the glory of Rome. But for the Christian, when he submits to the load at the Christian cross, he shows the world the glory of Christ. That's what he does. Self-denial, God-willing. Submissive sur surrender, how God wants it. And thirdly, shadow the Savior. Shadow the Savior. 
I'm going to do it when God wants it done. The third step is of true discipleship is follow me, Jesus said. Follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Say what I say. Live how I lived. Shadow the Savior. The true disciple does, doesn't simply do self-denial and take up their cross. Many men can live lives of great self-discipline and rejection of passions and desires. One could take vows like monks and vows of silence, live in a monastery, beat their, their minds and their backs into submission, denying even the most basic of human desires, and yet be completely on the path toward hell. And the road to hell, dear Christian, is not paved with skulls and crossbones, but with good intentions. You've probably heard that before. Many well-intentioned individuals, even carrying some form of a cross down the path of hell, living great lives of charity, goodwill towards men, maybe taking in orphans, looking after widows, doing many mighty works in the name of Jesus, casting out demons in his name. Yet he says, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart. I never knew you. Sometimes some devout worshippers of false gods even seem to put us Christians to shame in their devotion to their idols. We have the true and living God, yet we are often so very lax. Yet it's not simply self-denial or even self-sacrifice that makes a true disciple of Jesus. But it's more than that. It is a close devotion to Jesus himself. It is a shadowing of the Savior. It's toward studying his life and his walk Studying his talk towards following him, being careful to walk where his glorious feet have walked. And have there been any more beautiful feet than Jesus' feet, children? I've got the children. They, his feet were most beautiful. And they tread all the way to Calvary, obedient to his father. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me, John 10, 27. And let me remind you also of John 13. I won't read the whole passage there, but you can go read it at home. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, you remember that passage? I'll give you just verse 12 to 17 there. It says, so when he had washed their feet, taking his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is, who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Are you following and shadowing your Jesus? Serving like he served? Washing each other's feet at Faith Baptist? as he washed his disciples' feet in that upper room. You know what they were busy doing just before that? Sadly, and much to our shame, we can be much like the disciples of Jesus. They were arguing amongst each other. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be the best? Even one's mommy comes to say, 
Jesus, won't you please put one on your right, one on your left in your kingdom? Who's going to be the best? I'm the greatest. I'm the closest to him. They even started to argue like that, even within the context of the first Lord's Supper. You know what happened right after the Lord's Supper? They were arguing again. Jesus has already washed their feet. And they're arguing. Who's the greatest? So busy are they arguing with each other that they think Jesus sent Judas on some special mission. Judas is greater than us. They don't even hear properly where he says, the one who I give this to, the one who I takes this cup from me, he's what, when he looks at Judas in the eyes and he says, go do what you're going to do, go do it quickly. And Judas gets up and goes, they're all disappointed. Why didn't he send us? <sighs> Less brownie points for me. And yet we can so often be like this, instead of shadowing our saviour. And sadly, much of modern evangelicalism, and I pray that that's not the case for you, dear one, can often be defined by the same kind of competition that there was amongst the disciples of our Lord that were following him. Vying for position. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm loved the most by Jesus. No, 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 I'm loved the most by Jesus. That's following a different way. A different path than the one laid out for us in the scripture. If you love Jesus, you will obey his voice and you will go where he sends and do what he commands and stay where he says stay, stand where he says stand, fight where he says fight. Brothers and sisters, we are left with no excuse. We have his word. We've listened to his voice in the scriptures. How does Jesus talk to us? How does he talk to us? Through his word. Did you know, dear church, that you will have as much of Jesus' voice as you want to hear? That's quite a scary thought. You will have as much of his voice as you want to hear. You'll be as close to his shadow as you want to tread. And I want you to think for a moment. I drove a while to get here, so I'm preaching for like three hours, right, Pastor Clive? But I want you to think for a moment. Think with me. Have a moment of honesty before you and God. How much have you read of God's word this week? Be honest. How much of his word have you read this week? Then think about for a moment how much TV or some other form of media have you consumed? What or who are you really following? Are you shadowing Jesus? You know that you're shadowing Jesus when you can see his footsteps here, when you can hear his voice here. How can you follow Jesus if you cannot even hear his voice amongst the amusement park sounds of this vanity fair called the world? It's time to get radical. Christian. It's time for you as a disciple of Jesus to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow him. Lest you stand before him one day and he's ashamed of you. Go back to verse 24 in Matthew 16 for a moment. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me. 
Ask yourself that question then this morning, dear Christian. Do you really desire to go after Jesus? What's your desire? Do you desire Faith Baptist Church to follow after him? Do you really desire to be his disciple? Would you come after Jesus, dear one? Do what thou wilt, when thou wilt, how thou wilt. No, no, no. Not my will be done, Father, but yours. Glorify your Son through me. You want the commendation of Jesus instead of the condemnation of Jesus one day when you stand before him because two things are going to happen to each and every one of us unless if the rapture happens very soon and that's death and judgment. And we're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to give an account not just of the things done in the flesh but even those things we didn't do in the flesh. You want to hear, well done my good and faithful servant? Well then, self-denial, submissive surrender, and shadowing of your Savior. That's true discipleship. So that you're not ashamed of him, and so that he will not one day be ashamed of you. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to have your word. What a privilege it is to preach your word and to, have your, to hear your word being preached. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. You know every individual that is before me this morning. You know the intricacies of their lives. You know the difficulties, the hardships, the heartaches. You know what's going on here at Faith Baptist. You, you know those that are not here this morning as well. For whatever reason, whether it be sickness or laziness, you know each one. And my prayer, O oh Lord, is that you would unite this congregation as true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would continue to go this faithful path that disciples have gone since Acts chapter 2, since the very beginning of the church, this self-denial, this submissive surrender, and this shadowing of the Savior. I pray that you would do a mighty work in each heart, that you would light a flame that could not be put out. And if there is a, a small, smoldering little flame, that you would blow, O Spirit of God, and cause there to be a revival in the heart and a revival of worship of Christ, that there would be a quickening toward you. And I pray that this local congregation would make such an impact on Whitbank that their light would shine brightly. That when people hear of Faith Baptist Church, they wouldn't think of some church building with a little white steeple, but rather that they would think of individuals who shine brightly for Christ. Individuals who have denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed Jesus. Change our desires, O Lord. Work in us creating us a new spirit, a new heart of devotion toward you. Oh, won't you do that work in us? We need your help. Thank you for the saving work, Lord Jesus, that you accomplished for us at the cross. And we pray that in the light of that, that we would walk obediently to you.
Thank you, Father, for this. Thank you for this time. You are most merciful and most good, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name.